a normal country facing a rival like China would be building alliances to the rest of the world, not imposing tariffs on them. And I think that's what will likely come from the change of president in November. Um, and I think that's probably the most bullish news for emerging markets of all um, that's going to come out of this, this unexpected um, virus uh, and, and the impact on the global economy. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And that's what the chief economist for Renaissance Capital, Charlie Robertson, thinks will be the most important effect of COVID-19 for emerging market economies. Developing countries will come out of the crisis faster than many people expect, in his view, and the lasting effect will come not from the disease itself or the direct impact on the global economy, but from President Donald Trump not getting four more years to put up trade barriers and discourage global investment. I was speaking to Mr Robertson and the chief economist of the World Trade Organization, Robert Koopman, this week in a panel for City Week, an event organised by City and Financial Global. More on that in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to give you some on-the-ground perspective on the future of global trade. You might remember in the early months of the COVID crisis, a lot of commentators declared the end of globalisation. Governments, especially in Europe, started talking about the need for strategic autonomy. Never again would companies or countries want to get caught short in key medical supplies or discover that key inputs to major industries all came from a single factory in Wuhan. Production would be brought back home, they said. Supply chains would shrink. Ties with China would be cut. Well, that was the theory. Life has turned out to be more complicated, and those ties with China in particular have turned out to be quite hard to sever. A group of Bloomberg reporters from across Europe have been looking for firms who are rethinking their supply chains as a result of COVID-19. Their story was published this week, and I'm glad to say that one of those reporters, Piotr Skolimowski, is with me now. He's in Frankfurt and also spends a lot of time covering the European Central Bank. Piotr, welcome to Stephanomics. So what did you find out in this story? So it's not so easy for these firms to cut their ties with China. Hi, Stephanie. Indeed, it's uh, it's a tough one. Um, despite the fact that Europe is really trying to wean its economies off from the dependence on China and other Asian companies or Asian uh, suppliers, we talked to a few companies, one in, in Italy, for example, producer of shoes, where the chairman of the company basically said, well, Chinese workers are, are just better at doing what he called gym shoes. But, but the fact here is, is actually costs. So he says production costs in China are still 70%, 75% lower than in Italy. So that's a big factor of why he's not really eager to move everything to Italy. So as, as long as there are no uh, subsidies from the government or support in one form or another of lower taxes, for example, then he's not going to move production uh, closer to home. And it also applies to other sectors where, as a matter of fact, they are key to to, to the strategy of, of shortening supply chains in Europe. For example, pharmaceutical companies, we talked to one of the executives who said, well, actually, China dominates one of the market for ingredients to um, what he called active ingredients for, for drugs that he's, his company is producing. So it's really difficult to suddenly uh, move away from that 
and just go and, and find suppliers somewhere else. And finally, um, there's also another factor that simply companies uh, in Europe rely very heavily on exports. So China is not really only just a supplier of components, supplier of um, elements to their cars. It's a big booming market. So they cannot really afford to not to be there. And they're already building a big supply chain around China. They, as an example, they Volkswagen actually bought two companies or shares in two companies that have to do with battery cells and another with electric cars in China, just at the, at the peak of the, of the COVID pandemic in, in April. It sort of tells you that obviously there is a push to, to shorten supply chains, but there are factors that, that are kind of pushing into the opposite direction, uh, which will make it harder for companies to make it a, a, a big change in their strategy. Yeah, and I have to say that is something that we have heard uh, coming out of Asia as well. And our reporters and analysts who are involved in the tech industry, it's a similar message that the likes of Apple have invested so much in these quite sophisticated supply chains. And it's much easier said than done to start disentangling from China in particular. There's just the sunk costs involved apart from apart from anything else. But let's hear, I think we, we do have uh, a bit of that interview that you did with uh, the German pharmaceutical executive, Peter Goldschmidt, who is uh, chief executive of the generic pharmaceutical maker Stada. So, so let's hear from him now. Before you really start thinking about moving factory, doing test transfer into higher cost areas where no one knows who's able to pay it, and before, before this creates an additional risk because the tech transfer is also a risk, uh, we should really think about relatively, in my view, easier, fast fixes. I mean, are you also trying to say that actually there is, because you mentioned 40% of all active pharmaceutical ingredients are Chinese. I mean, that there is really no alternative to China as a supplier of a key ingredient in, in, in what you're producing? No, I, I, look, the point is, there are, of course, uh, a lot of alternatives. I could start and buying an API company and uh, hmm. start producing this also in Germany. The only problem I have is under normal circumstances, no one will buy it from me because I'm too expensive. The reason why it is in China is that the quality China has delivered, most uh, organizations, obviously, in Europe couldn't compete on a price level. That's why we have this situation. And, of course, if people would think, hey, that's an attractive business I should go to, then uh, more people would do it. But obviously, the business is not so attractive. So if the governments are willing uh, to substitute this in order that you have prices that you can have a company, and API is a, is a worldwide business, you cannot produce just API for Austria. Mm -hmm. um, you, you could do it. It's the, it's the question who pays the price. Everything is, is technically absolutely possible, absolutely no doubt. It's just a question of time and money. So in that sense, you think that government in its hopes or, or actually Europe-wide, if you look at the whole uh, strategy these days, there's going to be a bit of a disappointment that this is not going to be, first of all, a quick process. And secondly, there will have to be a lot of steps before we even 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 go there uh, in terms of... Yeah, and, and maybe there are after quick fix solutions, like the storage of API, for example, in a given country. And then you have an assigned producer in a crisis time who has them to make sure that they can produce the volume based on this API, right? Before you do like this big picture. I mean, my problem in the discussion is not that this could be a possible solution that um, you bring more 
whatever kind of uh, production, pharmaceutical production, back to Germany. That's a political decision which costs money and has implications on our drug prices in, in Germany. Piotr Skolomowski, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, as it happens, I put exactly this question about the future of global supply chains to the chief economist of the World Trade Organization, Robert Koopman, in my City Week panel that I mentioned at the start. And we also had Charlie Robertson, chief economist for Renaissance Capital, on that panel. He was much more upbeat about the future of emerging market economies than others I've talked to on Stephanomics in recent weeks. I guess when you listen to him, you do need to remember that his firm specialises in investing in emerging market economies. So you can judge for yourself whether his story stacks up. But I started by asking Robert Koopman about his forecast for 2020 and beyond. We have a projection for global trade for 2020 declining in an optimistic scenario of about 13%, anywhere up to 32% in a pessimistic scenario. Uh, The latest data suggests we're more on track for the optimistic scenario, a trade decline of around 12, 13, maybe 14%. Uh, With a slow recovery, though, uh, for 2021 and into 2022, I think the drivers of the slow recovery are weakness, expected weakness in consumption and particularly uh, expected weakness in investment. We don't think that firms are going to have a very confident view of the future of the global economy. And I think that investment is going to be relatively weak. Investment is a significant driver of global trade. Going forward, I think the likely recovery for trade is that trade will probably get back to close to its long-term average growth rate of about one and a half times uh, global GDP growth. But I think it's going to be a re-globalization. It's going to be a reorganization of globalization that we've seen in the past 20 or 30 years. Probably more regional supply chains, a lot more digital trade than we've seen in the past that's been growing fast i think it's going to it's growing faster now and continue to grow fast and i think you'll see more flexible production processes maybe regional agreements to help to respond to spikes in demand as a result of either uh health crisis or climate crisis so we'll see uh, i think this reorganization of globalization maybe um with slower growth and The long-term implications of slower trade growth usually means slower productivity growth in the future. So we have significant concerns around that. There's been a lot of conversation about what happens to global supply chains as a result of this crisis. And the immediate after or the immediate stages of the crisis, a lot of talk about bringing production home or at least diversifying supply chains, not just in response to COVID, but also worries around, around China. But we've had uh, some of our reporting this week, in fact, in Europe, we're looking at companies who've been trying to shorten their supply chains and struggling and realizing that it's going to be just too costly to do that. They've got too much wedded to the very sophisticated approach uh, they had before. So what is your view when you talk about reorganization of globalization? Is that diversification of supply chains? What is it, do you think? It's mainly diversification. Most global supply chains are regional. You think about automobiles, 90% of automobile supply chains are are regional, but there can be that one part, that one critical part that is from outside the region that could be difficult to um, procure domestically, but hold up the entire product. 
I think they'll find ways to diversify those supply chains, not bring that one obscure but very important product uh, to some local uh, production facility. I do think they'll use inventories. I will might see, particularly for those kinds of products, firms will change their just-in-time inventory um, approach to something that's a little more balanced. They'll still use just-in-time for those things that they don't think are that disruptive or that they can easily diversify um, and have multiple suppliers. But for those things, those products, those components that they can't, my, my suspicion is they'll carry more inventory of that. And keep in mind, you know, this started as a supply shock in China, but you know, you can have a fire or a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico that knocks out your domestic supply chain just as badly. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that the strategy of reshoring uh, really holds up um, in the long term. But weaker growth, weaker investment, that does undermine that integration and globalization. Charlie Robertson, I know that you're looking at macro strategy from a global perspective at Renaissance. And I wonder how do you think about the recovery and particularly the fact that we now are in this what you might call a messier stage where some countries are coming in and out of lockdown. We're potentially having second waves. We're not sure about the consumer, how the consumer is going to behave in these first few months of recovery. How are you seeing things? Yeah, I, I'm chief economist of an emerging market frontier bank, uh, Renaissance Capital. So I'm going to have to focus mostly on that. Um, but what, what's been striking to us is the success that emerging markets have had in fighting the disease, at least in East Asia. Um, and it's worth remembering that two thirds of emerging markets equities are don't have the virus anymore. Uh, that's China, Korea, Taiwan, Thailand. They, they make up 70% of MSCI emerging markets. They have no virus. So it's not even a, an issue of a V shape or a W shape or anything else. Everyone can go back to restaurants. Everyone can go back onto planes, you know, travel, et cetera, at least internally, um, is back to normal. So it looks pretty V shaped in, in what is two thirds of emerging markets. Either they've beaten the virus or they've said there's nothing we can do to stop the virus. Either way, I think their economic recoveries are gonna look somewhat better. Charlie, I was struck by um, what you were saying about EM, because when I talk to our emerging market economists, it's quite a bleak picture that comes out of it, not for some of the countries that you were talking about, but when you talk about India or South Af large parts of Africa, big some parts of Latin America, it feels like the, the risk is that this crisis is going to shut the door on a lot of countries who were on their way into the emerging market and potentially beyond. Um, it'll it make it much harder for them to continue to progress and actually they could lose 10 or 15 years of progress as a result of this. Is that fair? I mean, you talked about the, the countries that have already emerged to some extent, and they are well represented in the MSCI index and everything else. But those that hadn't built their capacity by 2020, the risk is they're not going to be able to now in the conditions of the next few years because they're going to be so hit by this crisis. Isn't that a concern? I mean, the numbers I've been talking about in places like Sub-Sahara, 
And what I've been struck by is that the average age of those dying in the UK is about 80 years old. And the percentage of Nigerians aged 80 or more is zero. Uh, the number of Kenyans aged 80 or more is also zero. And they're just not going to be hit in, in that way. Um, what I think has actually been much more damaging than the virus for sub-Sahara or lower income countries has been this trend towards protectionism, the lack of trade, the discouragement of foreign direct investment globally in recent years. And I think perhaps the most important change that's going to come about as a result of this virus is the political change in November in the States. Um, we put out a piece a month or two ago saying that no US president is ever re-elected um, after a recession in his first term. And I've been saying that and upsetting my Democrat friends in New York for some years about Trump and saying that he was going to win this election because there was no recession in the States. Um, and, and they were very unhappy with me saying that. But of course, that's changed now. And he has symbolized protectionism more than anybody else in the global economy. But actually, he's really made a difference. Um, you've seen FDI, foreign direct investment, flow into America and not flow out of America. You've had negative net FDI, or in fact, if you like, FDI flows net into the States for the last two years. And that has meant no FDI into emerging markets. Who wants to set up a factory in emerging markets when there could be a big tariff war set against you? Um, and it's, it's really hurt growth. Um, so I think this political change that's now, I, I think, inevitable in November is going to be very important. Not that America and Chinese relations are going to be perfect. They will not. Um, that's going to be a rivalry that will continue for years. But a normal country facing a rival like China would be building alliances to the rest of the world, not imposing tariffs on them. Vietnam should be America's best friend right now. India should be America's best friend right now. And I think that's what will likely come from the change of president in November. 2021, I don't think is going to, we're not going to see big FDI in 2021. There's a global recession. No one's going to be putting money into anywhere, including emerging markets. It's not going to be great from that perspective. But I think this protectionist theme, which has been so painful and, and, and has supported the stronger dollar, of course, as well, that protectionist theme, that's turning at the end of this year. Um, and I think that's probably the most bullish news for emerging markets of all um, that's going to come out of this, this unexpected um, virus uh, and, and the impact on the global economy. Um, Robert uh, Koopman, you know, you're sitting as chief economist of the WTO. Do you share Charlie's view that if you see uh, Trump defeated in the election, that one could continue to have challenging relations between the US and China, but it wouldn't necessarily infect uh, the global trading system. Because I think that's, that's an interesting point Charlie made that I think I hadn't heard others make. People tend to say that the US-China battle will infect everything else and make the global trading system a much more protectionist, much more fractured place. But how do you see it? Um, I don't think that the election is going to necessarily bring about big positive effects in the trade area. There are scarring effects, I think, just like we're talking about the COVID crisis. 
the political scarring effects from the the, the uh, Trump policies are likely to remain. Um, I think they'll be somewhat mitigated, and perhaps, and I, I do hope I'm wrong, significantly mitigated. But um, the the debate around trade started to change, um, you know, in the mid 2010s. Um, and uh, Trump has certainly taken that rather aggressively forward. There's this focus on U.S.-China. Do not forget about U.S.-EU. Th those stresses are pretty significant, and they've been there for a long time. And uh, normally, the two um, regions, countries, have worked well together to keep those sort of um, channeled into something like the WTO dispute body or competing... Uh, regional trade agreements, you know, so they've been somewhat productively managed. Uh, but I think that's going to be something that remains to be seen how that works out. Should there be a change in administrations in, in the fall? Uh, actually, a change in administration wouldn't happen until the beginning of the new year. I, I, a couple of things the trade war tariffs and the uncertainty around that. So the tariffs on China, you know, costly to the US. Somewhat costly to China, caused a lot of trade diversion, contributed to uncertainty. But the bigger contributor to uncertainty was auto tariffs on the EU, general trade policy from the United States, the sort of uh, weakening of the centrality of the WTO in the in the trading system, which was largely pushed by U.S. positions in the G20. But all of those effects were relatively small. The COVID effects are huge. I mean, they're just massive compared to the trade war tariffs, but both have potential long-term implications for growth. Um, a big concern from COVID for me is automation. I think firms are going to try to find ways to um, substitute for human workers as much as possible. On the service side, we can easily distribute those workers, perhaps through remote work. That's a bit harder in manufacturing. I think we'll see significant investments in uh, manufacturing that could undermine then um, a lot of workers and their ability to find uh, good work, good paying jobs. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is transforming the global economy. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you should follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, and the story we spoke about at the start of the programme was written by Flavia Rotundi, Jeanette Newman, Zhao Lima and Piotr Skolimowski. It was also edited by Ala Shaheen. Special thanks to Charlie Robertson, Piotr Skolimowski, Robert Koopman and City and Financial Global. Lucy Meekin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. 